that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. In the blink of a cosmic clock, I went from quantum physicist to Air Force test pilot, which could have been fun if I knew how to fly. Fortunately, I had help. An observer from the project named Al. Unfortunately, Al's a hologram, so all he can lend is moral support. Anyway, here I am, bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong. A sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto. And I don't even need a mask. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode nine, Honeymoon Express. Al, I'm a newlywed. Can you believe it? And on my honeymoon. You lucky dog. Lucky? Al, that woman is a complete stranger to me. Aren't you at least going to kiss me goodbye? Oh boy. What does Ziggy say? He says there's a 78.6% chance you're here to help Diane pass her bar exam. Uh-huh. You're not afraid of me? No. You should be. I'm going to kill you. They shut down the project. You won't be able to contact me. I was thinking of trying a couple of tin cans on a piece of string. Are they pulling the plug? No. This is our last contact. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I am Albie. And I'm Heather. We have a great show today. We have an interview with Holly Fields, Jill from the Kamikaze Kid. That's awesome. She's really nice. It's a great interview, and that's coming up later in the show. And we are here to take you all the way through Quantum Leap, episode by episode. This episode, Honeymoon Express. Sam leaps into a firefighter. Nope. For a little while. Oh, yeah, he does. And he heroically saves a cat named Ginger. What a weird leap. <laughs> yeah, it must be important. Who's ever controlling the leaping? Might be like a friend of theirs cats or something. Like a little side job here. Just save a cat out of a tree. Maybe it was a butterfly effect thing. Like because that cat was saved. Something happened in the future to like keep everybody from dying from some plague or something. Exactly. See, we don't know. We don't know what can happen. That was the shortest leap ever, I think. Yeah, I know he's done a double leap before, but not. Not like that. Not like that. Not like in Double Identity. This was uh, just a small leap. It could have been just a tiny ending to a longer leap that we didn't see. That's true. Maybe they cut that part out. Mm. (laughs) So what did you think of that leap? Did you find any moral message or meaning where Sam saves a kitty cat? No. I didn't really think much about it. I I mean, it was a cute little cute moment, but... (laughs) I have to say, good special effects. Oh, yeah, when he's standing on the roof, kind of, or in the middle of the air. But I'm ready to move on to the next leap. I don't know about you. Yeah. Okay, Sam leaps into a cop named Tom McBride, and he's on a train. To the Niagara Falls with his, with his new, wife. new bride. And uh, to get more in the spirit of this episode, we are recording on a train. Probably not the best idea for sound quality, but it kind of goes with the theme of the episode, and I figured it'd be fun. Is this your first time on a train, Heather? It is. It's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, I don't think I've ever needed to go on a train before, but... Well, wait, no, I was... I was 
I went on a train from New Jersey to Massachusetts when I was a little kid. Don't remember much about it, but apparently I was on a train then. <laughs> was there a crazy French guy trying to kidnap you? No. No, there wasn't. So, comparatively so, pretty boring? Yeah. I, I It was a... Uh, yeah, I don't think anything really exciting happened. I probably slept. That's probably why I don't remember much of it. So you may have been kidnapped, saved, and returned, and you slept the whole time. You don't know. Very true. It okay. could have happened. So uh, hopefully the noise won't be too distracting, And but it's more about the conversation than the audio quality. It's, it's for added ambiance. I like that. <laughs> All right. And I just wanted to excuse to have a train ride. You know, we can ride it off, right? Exactly. Okay. I hope. <laughs> Heather. Will you do the honors of reading the episode recap? Sure. This is Season 2, Episode 1, Honeymoon Express. Original broadcast date, September 20th, 1989. Written by Donald P. Belisario. Directed by Aaron Lipstadt. Al is appearing before a Senate committee in order to convince them to renew the project's $2.4 billion annual budget. Reading over the report, the committee is incredulous towards Al's assertion that the project has mysteriously been taken over by God, who is using Sam to put things right that once went wrong. Furthermore, without proof that the time travel experiment ever actually happened or that Sam's accomplishments carry any global or historical significance, the committee concludes that they are unable to justify renewed funding of the project. Al contests that if they cut funding, Sam will be trapped alone in the past. The chairman mockingly suggests that Sam will not be alone, as he will have God to watch over him. Al goes to visit Sam, who was a fireman in the year 1957, in the midst of rescuing a little old lady's cat from a tree. After Sam dies for the cat and falls to the ground, the cat lands on him and safely jumps into the grateful arms of its owner. Having accomplished his simple mission, Sam leaps once more. This time, he leaps into Tom McBride, a New York cop who is riding the Honeymoon Express train with his newlywed, Diane. When Diane discovers that he brought her law books along for the trip, she thanks him for being supportive of her goal to pass the bar exam. Uncomfortable at the prospect of making love to a complete stranger, Sam suggests that Diane do some studying while he wanders off to speak with Al. Without mentioning his appearance with the Senate committee, Al tells Sam that he has the opportunity to affect an event of global proportions. In two days, the U-2 spy plane flown over Russia by Gary Powers will be shot down. The event contributes to the breakdown of the U.S.-Soviet relations and extends the Cold War for decades. Al tells Sam that Diane's father is an influential U.S. senator, who is also one of President Eisenhower's golfing partners. If Sam can get Diane to contact her father and convince the president to call off the mission, Sam will have stopped the event from happening. Sam is confused as none of his prior leaps have ever required him to affect a major historical event. He wants to know what Ziggy says about his mission. According to Ziggy, Sam must simply help Diane pass her bar exam. After Al leaves, Sam hears Diane scream. He watches from down the hall as Diane is being dragged from her carriage by a man carrying a knife. Sam runs over to rescue her and draws his gun on the alleged kidnapper. The man, Roger, reveals himself to be Diane's ex-husband. Roger says that Sam does not look like the sort of man who is capable of killing another person and voluntarily exits the train. Diane apologizes for not telling him about her former husband. She says that Roger was a possessive and jealous husband who prevented her from leading her own life. He is also a dangerous arms dealer who began his profession by smuggling arms to the French resistance during World War II and continued the lucrative business thereafter. Meanwhile, Al convinces the Senate committee to delay their ruling until after the weekend. He declares that Sam is in the midst of preventing the U-2 event from taking place, thus proving to the committee that Sam has traveled in time. 
and that his mission carries global and historical significance. Sam and Diane are enjoying champagne in the dining cart. Diane sees a man sipping champagne and becomes paranoid that it is one of Roger's bodyguards, which turns out to be true. Al shows up and Sam excuses himself to go and talk with him. Sam is annoyed with Al because Diane was nearly abducted by her ex-husband, a fact which Al failed to warn him about. Al confesses that the project has been forced to make cuts in the researching unit. He also tells Sam it is important that he prevent the U2 event, but Sam contests that he has more important things to worry about. Sam returns to the carriage where Diane wants to make love. Sam tries to get out of it by telling her he is not Tom McBride, but a quantum physicist named Sam Beckett. Diane assumes he is simply having fun and goes along with it. However, she becomes startled when she sees Roger through the window, preparing to reboard the train. Sam sets off to confront him. As he is walking down the hall, Roger's bodyguard deliberately bumps into Sam and snatches his gun from him. Sam finds Roger seated in the dining cart. Roger says he still loves Diane and that her vow to honor and obey him requires her to stay with him. Sam says she changed her mind. Roger says Sam is foolish for defying him as he killed his own mother for betraying the members of the French resistance and has no qualms about killing him too. Al arrives to confirm that Roger did indeed murder Tom McBride and urges Sam to kill him first. However, Sam realizes his gun is missing and leaves the table. Hal advises Sam to have the conductor radio the police as Roger is wanted for murdering his psychiatrist. However, he also urges Sam about the importance of preventing the U-2 mission. He finally reveals that the committee is threatening to cut off the project's funding unless Sam can stop the mission. Sam realizes that without Al, he cannot go on and returns to the carriage to ask Diane to contact her father. She cannot do so as he is on a fishing trip and unavailable. The train conductor attempts to radio the police until Roger's bodyguard knocks him out. Both Roger and the bodyguard appear outside Sam and Diane's carriage. Sam pulls the emergency cord to stop the train and hides Diane in the overhead luggage compartment. Sam jumps out the window to lure both Roger and the bodyguard off the train. As they split up, Sam tackles Roger and manages to steal his knife. Roger's coat becomes trapped underneath the train and Sam escapes. He jumps back on the train and tells the driver to restart the train. Roger's bodyguard attempts to board the moving train until he slips and falls under the train to his death. Roger, however, manages to climb back on the train. Sam asks the porter for a gun and returns to the carriage to collect Diane. Roger appears behind them with a pistol and forces Sam to throw his gun out the window. Diane tells Roger she will come with him as long as he spares Sam's life. Realizing that Diane truly loves him, Roger is about to pull the trigger until Sam produces the knife he stole from Roger and plunges it into him. Al has returned to the Senate committee. The chairman reads a history book which demonstrates that the U2 event is unchanged and that Sam failed to prevent it. Al, however, argues that Sam was able to save the life of Diane McBride. The chairman becomes annoyed and accuses Al of posturing. He says that he was the protege of Diane's father, Senator Max Brown, and that he beat Diane in an election race to succeed him after he died. He tells Al to accept that he has lost. Sam, meanwhile, is with Diane, helping her revise for her bar exam. Sam tells Diane that one of her answers is wrong, a mistake which Diane says could otherwise have cost her the exam. Back in the present, the chairman is preparing to announce his final verdict on the project's funding, when an elderly Diane suddenly appears in his place. Due to Sam's helping her pass the bar, Diane has gone on to become a senator and is now the Senate committee chairman. She says that the project's ambitions are noble and thus worthy of renewed funding. She also recalls having met a man, Sam Beckett, in the past, but cannot remember when or where. With Sam and Al's mission both completed, Sam leaps and Al lets out a sigh of relief. 
thank you, Heather, for the episode recap. If I did not watch the episode nine times, I would know what's going on just by listening to the recap. <laughs> I watched this episode a lot. Yeah, but it was a good one at least, right? <laughs> yeah, it was really good. I liked the whole, I'd say B story. I think Sam was the B story in this episode. I want to say Al and the funding and the committee was the A story, maybe. It was more like focused on Al, I think, trying to accomplish a mission more than Sam. Yeah, they both had their own mission to accomplish, and uh, Al's was definitely more important. Well, actually, not really, because Sam's mission helped Al's mission. Right. It was a big, weird loop. Good job, writers. Yes. Donald P. Belisario wrote this one. Yes. It was directed by Aaron Lipstadt, which is the same guy who directed the last episode we talked about, Played Against Seymour. So maybe he's the go-to guy when it comes to, like, a crime thriller. Now, if I'm not mistaken... Was there an episode that was supposed to be in between these two? One was shot, What Price Gloria, where Sam's a woman. And that's coming up, I think, uh, two episodes from now. And they just redid the order for TV? Yeah. um, A lot of TV shows used to have, like, when they didn't have an overall story arc, they would just move around the air dates of productions. You know, so the production date and the air date didn't always match up. I just didn't expect this episode. I expected the woman one when I first watched this one. A lot of people were confused, I'm sure. Like, wait, he's a woman and a cop on a train with his bride in their... In the 70s, dancing in a disco <laughs> as a stuntman. I don't think we're there yet. Oh, okay. I think that's next episode. No spoilers. I noticed Sam's hair was longer in this episode. It is getting long. He really does need a haircut. Which is weird, because we're seeing his personality, right? Not him, actually. Yes. So he's still shaved, but his hair's longer. So maybe... Maybe he had to film a Pantene commercial. Maybe. You he, never know. He did a lot of commercials back in the day. Really? Yeah, Scott Bakula. Scott Bakula commercials. YouTube it. Scott Bakula plus commercial. You'll see like Canada Extra Dry and all kinds of cool stuff. Singing and dancing. I have a feeling that he was just a really cool person to work with too. And for those of you who are listening right now, we have our the Holly Fields interview coming up. And the two interviews we've had so far, everyone says that Scott Bakula is awesome. So. And other interviews I've heard always people always go out of their way to mention how cool he is. So I can't wait to talk to him on the phone. So I'm sure he did a lot of work back in the day just because everyone's like, oh, just call Scott Bakula. He's awesome. Yeah, you'll want to work with this guy. He's, he just seems like a cool guy. The thing that occurred to me in this episode is that he is a nerd. Like, he's the... And not in a derogatory term at all. Like, not it's not a bad thing. It's just that he he is the science kid who's always been smart and... Reading books at two years old. Right. But I, like, I mean, obviously you have to be smart to be a quantum physicist, but I just didn't, like, I thought he was the charismatic, like, ladies man type still. And he's totally not like that. I think uh, the actor is, but he's playing a character that's more nerdy, scientific kind of guy. Right. But it, to me, I just, I got to see more of Sam Beckett in this episode. You know, I, I got to see that he, he's not like Al, we know that, but I mean... As far as not sleeping with this girl, I mean, he kind of got a free pass, and he still was uncomfortable with it. He said, give me a sign, and she walks out in a negligee. I mean, that's a sign. Yeah. (laughs) But he really does fall for these women in his leaps. I mean, we don't see that he's there for a few days, but, I mean, I'm sure he was there for a few days and got to know them pretty well. And I'm sure it's easy to fall in love with someone who's already in love with you and doesn't know that you're someone else. But he really does fall hard for these girls, and I'm sure it's sad when he leaps for him anyway and i think the tragic irony was by the time of the episode he's ready to sleep with her but then he leaps out they i thought i was i thought they already had where they were maybe i need to watch it a tenth time well no like i was just under the impression because they were all like cutesy close and stuff that they already had i missed that how did i miss that 
I don't know. Oh, you so were looking for like actual footage, but there was I, brown I chicken, brown cow. <laughs> this is horrible. But uh, so they did, huh? So you would uh, say that's they my did. assumption. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll go with it. I thought. Well, I guess when they got to Niagara Falls, because right oh. they're in the they're in the hotel room in Niagara Falls. They're way too close. You're right. You're right. How did I miss that? Like I said, you were looking for actual footage. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is different from any other episode to this point because it starts off where we're following Al, not Sam. Oh, yeah. And I was unaware that Al was an admiral in the Navy. Rear admiral. I don't know if that's different. It sounds... <laughs> it doesn't sound right, but... <laughs> yeah. Especially... In the, never mind. Stop it, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first time anybody knew that he was in the Navy. Yeah, because he doesn't... Well, he's done everything. I mean... So, of I course guess. he's been in the Navy. And he must have been in the Air Force if he was an astronaut. Is that how that works? I think so. Hmm. Because he was a pilot. He had a really long life. <laughs> he had like 14 lives and he, you know, you would think that he would now be doing something more than just helping Sam. Cause he's it's very important though. And now there's no choice. There's no going back. Like if he asks for a raise, they got to give him a raise <laughs> because it's only their brainwaves connected. You know what I'm saying? So nobody else can do it. <laughs> and he just got the budget passed for, what is it? $2.4 billion or something. Ridiculous. But Ziggy takes up a lot of power. Yeah, I don't understand why it is that much money. Like, it, I don't know what they're running that it's causing that much. There must be a bunch of people working at the project, you know, keeping the accelerator going maybe while he's back there. I don't know how that works. Must cost a lot of electricity. Yeah, big electric bill. Yeah, it's kind what? of, but it like still that's so, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Good money making ideas. We can say you leaped and try to get some money. <laughs> So, <laughs> in our backyard, we created this thing. So it looks like a barbecue pit, but it's actually a quantum leap accelerator. I have to say, I had no idea where this episode was going on that front. I just assumed that they were going to change their mind. But I knew that if Al got Sam to change the history, that they wouldn't know. That's my whole... I don't want to say beef, but that's my whole problem with the episode, that Al is so convinced that if Sam changes something so big that it will be obvious to people that history has changed. But that's not the way history works. The way history works is whatever happened that day gets written down and then it's history. So whatever happened, it would be the history the whole time. So He could have made something up and said, but you don't know because you're right. in... <laughs> And you thought it was like that all along, but I know. But so there was really no way to tell. We we ask our listeners later on in the show, we have some listener feedback and different theories on time travel. My theory is pretty much, uh, have you seen the movie Looper? Yes. Like, I'm not going to give it away for people who haven't seen it, but if you like time travel, watch that movie. But I'm going to say it's like time travel in Looper, where like everything that happens instantly affects everything. Because that's the way it would be, I think. Right. Well, see, I, I was never really into... Not not that I wasn't into time travel, but I I wasn't as far into time travel before that I am now. Um, and I just read 112263, so my brain is all time travel-y, thanks to Stephen King. <laughs> Again, awesome book. Yeah, um, it's very, very awesome book. But, I mean, that book shows you that even if you change something for the good, it could come back to haunt you and change horribly for the bad. So Really, every little thing you do changes everything after that. But then again, if you watch The Butterfly Effect, you know that already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess there's a kind of shorthand of talking about time travel is uh, instead of explaining like the type of time travel science, you explain where it was used, like Butterfly Effect or 112263 or Star Trek. Well, I think that there's 
certain rules that apply to all time travel and then once you break it down into smaller things like just your presence wouldn't that change the future you know like I, I know that in eleven twenty two sixty three they talk about the fact that it doesn't cha- like small things don't change the future too much at least that was the theory in the book and you know I, I guess it depends on what you change that changes but still it's such a such a fine line <laughs> time travel is very confusing and I think being that there's so many different possibilities and ways that time travel could work that there's so many ways that people can get it wrong so it's important for entertainment purposes just to say it's time travel timey-wimey kind of stuff well because it's not a reality that we know of yet um i think that that's why it's such a big margin of error i guess because we don't know the reality of it so we're all just guessing and until we get to that point if we ever do you know i don't know if we'll ever get it right you know who knows if we'll get it right (laughs) The, the guesses of how time travel works. Hmm. How would we know if time travel worked? Probably, like, if I sometime in the future went back in time and changed something, would we even know it changed? Or would it just be the same all around us? It would be... We would know. But I'm sure that it would be on the news, like, hey, somebody time traveled. No. No, I'm, like, saying that someone wouldn't... No, but if someone could time travel, they would totally patent it and, and make it a thing. I don't think that they would... But then Keep somebody else would steal the time travel technology and go back in time and then patent it themselves. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm done. What I'm trying to say is just because we don't agree with uh, maybe a time travel theory doesn't mean we can't find the whatever the movie or TV show is doesn't mean we can't find it entertaining. Because like Back to the Future, one of my favorite time travel movies slash trilogies, I don't really agree with the time travel in it, but you know it's an awesome movie. Because I don't think you would fade away slowly. I think if you stopped yourself from being born, you wouldn't be there anymore ever. But then that would be a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I, you do need some um, artistic licensing with it, I think. Stretch the truth a little. I think if you want an accurate time travel movie TV show thing, Primer. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't think so. It's way worth watching, Primer. Now, how do you know that it's accurate? Okay, so I guess it's not accurate, but it's. I agree with the science behind the time travel in that it's movie. The most realistic to me, to you, right? Cool. It's, it's a highly interpretive science time travel. Uh, I guess we should talk more about this episode, like in detail. Uh, one of the first things I noticed on the committee is uh, those light mics. Those are pretty cool. Every time they talk, they kind of lit up red. Yeah, those are fancy schmancy. I, I guess. Like if, okay, we're now recording a podcast and we have a mixing board and when we talk, it lights up. So I guess it's kind of like the same thing, but something Mm. that they didn't really do. Well, they still don't do that on mics, but. You should patent it. I'm picturing it was a guy off camera with a button just hitting it every time the guy talked. It might have been. (laughs) Probably would have been cheaper than having a mic that actually picked up on the sound and made. So I'm assuming those weren't real microphones. No. So. Those were bent plastic tubes. Right. Clear. They were futuristic-like. In this episode, I think it's the first time that we see that Al and Sam 100% agree that God is controlling their leaping. Which is odd because so far in the show, they've kind of left it to your own interpretation. Right. It's been very ambiguous. But at the same time, the committee disagrees. But right. they're they're supposed to be the bad guys, so... Right. Um, and this episode was written by Don P. Belisario, so this might be what he thinks is controlling it i don't know we'll have to keep watching that and see and uh they mentioned uh with a lowercase g or a capital g and i didn't kind of understand that 
And then uh, there was a Lady Gaga song a little bit ago that had to do with that also. Capital H-I-M. Yeah. So I looked it up because I, I didn't comprehend it to see what was uh, proper grammar and spelling of that. And uh, it turns out that if it's a lowercase g, you're talking about a god. As, a god. Right. A god like... Uh, Zeus. Right. Is a god. Zeus or whatever your god may be named. And if your god happens to be named god, then it's a proper name. Then it's a capital G. It's the same as if you said, congratulations on becoming a mom. That is lowercase. But if you say, hey, mom, that is used as a proper name and it's capital M. Right. I think the example I read is your cat is spelled with a lowercase c, but if you named it cat, it would be a capital C. So. What does that have to do with what the committee was asking? Um, I don't know. Uh, well, I guess they were asking if he meant like specifically God. Oh. Not a God. I don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, the even when it when it comes to God, even like he and him, when you're referring to God as capital H, like in the Lady Gaga song. Right. It's very confusing. Which is that that's not capital for anybody else. Like. Right. So if you're God, it happens to be named God. No, but what I'm saying is, is if you are referring to God in a sentence and it says like, and he blah, 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 he is capital for God, but nobody else. It's confusing to me, (laughs) but we'll move on. (laughs) A little grammar lesson on the Quantum Leap podcast. (laughs) I'm sure there's like a second grade school teacher going, no, you got it all wrong. No, I know that part. I, I know that one. They did a really good job in the mirror part of this episode. They're getting better with that. Yeah, I mean, really good. You can tell they worked on it. And in the background, the sign was even printed in reverse, which I really liked. I didn't even know. It. I guess it was just so good that I didn't have anything to say about it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're getting better. And the special effects in this episode, so much better on Al. He looks a lot less like a cutout than more like he's actually there almost. Yeah, season two is a little bit better as far as effects. But maybe they got a bigger budget. I saw no evidence that Tom McBride was Swiss cheese with Sam in this episode. I thought it was a completely Sam. Yeah, which is why I liked to see more of his um, his personality sticking out with the champagne bubbles and talking about his mom and reading when he was crazy young. And But I wasn't sure if that was part Tom McBride, too. Like, I didn't know if the reading the champagne bubbles was, was part Tom McBride or part Sam. It could be because we haven't seen that before in Sam. Like... Tom seems like a nice guy because he I don't think their personalities are that different because the way Diane was reacting to Sam it didn't seem that they were that much different besides the fact that he was trying to push her away for most of the episode yeah I mean really he's got a free pass there and like uh, Al said why are you wasting it on him (laughs) I, I mean she was throwing herself at him big time yeah but he said that she was a stranger and Mm, he's a nice guy yeah but i mean kudos to him for having self-control but it's just like a woman is throwing herself at you thinking that you're her husband i guess he didn't want to do anything on false pretenses yeah he didn't want to lie which is understandable he's a moral guy it makes you wonder if al was the one leaping and sam was the one in the imaging chamber holding the hand link how this show would be very different yeah it would be a an on hbo or showtime (laughs) i would be like put another notch in my belt sam he'd be like really i was only gone for 10 minutes (laughs) he'd be like i'll i'll come back sam (laughs) sam would be (laughs) sam would be like i'll I'll come back because because al you know how al's like should should i come back you know maybe while they were planning the project they talked about this and decided it'd be best if sam went sam was a little bit more uh moral yes 
Al, Al's a good guy too. He's just a ladies' man. Well, think about it. If uh, somebody was back in time connecting with everyone he could, there'd be a lot more people in the world. And that would change a lot of timelines. <laughs> connecting. I like your use of that word. Thank you. Um, so Diane's ex-husband, Roger, he's French, and he makes his money smuggling arms into Africa. Not a nice guy. How do you get into that? <laughs> you know, you start off small and you smuggle arms into the neighboring village, I guess, and then you work your way to continents. How do you marry a guy and not know that's what he does? He is a good criminal, I guess. It's not like you go around telling people, hey, I deal arms. I really like the actor who played Roger, which I can't spell, by the way. His name is Matthew Carrier, and he did a really great job, I think, playing the bad guy. Because I really believed he was a pretty good bad guy. He was a good bad guy. When he said, uh, are you scared of me? And he's like, no. And he's like, you should be. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and who pulls a knife on somebody? I guess in the 70s, that was scary. Yeah, knife. Look, you know, like a switchblade or something like that. But then Sam pulls out the gun, and uh, he's like, oh, maybe I'll put my knife away. Yeah, I like that part. It was uh, kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the samurai sword thing, and then just Indy pulls out his gun and goes, Phew. What is it? Don't bring a knife to a gunfight? I think that's right. And so, very good example that here. Uh, did you notice his lighter had like a weird cross symbol? Yes. I looked it up. It's called the Cross of Lorraine. I don't know what that is. The Cross of Lorraine was originally a heraldic cross with a two-barred cross consists of a vertical line crossed by two shorter horizontal bars. The Lorraine name has come to signify several cross variations, including the patriarchal cross with its bars near the top. So basically, it's... A like a French cross is what I get out of it. Well, it's just like the overall name for different crosses right. <laughs> is what I've got out of it. So him being French, that makes sense. Yes. So good on the prop department. They got that one right. I don't know if it's in the script or just the prop guy thought of it, but whoever thought of it, pretty good. By the way, this whole episode, really good. I mean, watching it, you really think that they're on a train. And uh, they're not. They're on a soundstage, and their train car is on a soundstage. But there's rear projection behind them, you know, film being projected onto a screen in front of the windows of the towns going by. The cameraman is uh, constantly shaking the camera just a little bit up and down, so you have that feeling that the train is in motion. And, uh, of course, you got the sound track on the background, the effects of the train sound the whole time. And uh, then later on at night, you have guys standing behind the camera with, like, red lights or white lights and just swiping them by to make it look like they're going by a light. I mean, really good job by everybody involved in that whole crew to make it seem like it was on a train because it really looked like it was on a train. So what you're saying is we could have just put a track in the background of our podcast and we didn't actually have to take all of our equipment onto a train right but not as fun yeah i guess i guess people are kind of looking at us funny but you know yeah but you know because we have the sign up that says quiet please yeah (laughs) (laughs) but uh it's tax deductible you know the tickets it's for our job so it's okay where are we going it's a surprise i don't know if i should be scared or excited (laughs) be excited are we going to Niagara Falls? No. This might be a really long podcast. <laughs> That's a long way from here, but uh, we might have to fly back. Hmm. Sam predicts that Diane will be the first president to give birth in the Oval Office. Do presidents give birth in the Oval Office? If, I mean, if... If they're going to give birth, I guess, where else would you? I guess if they're working late <laughs> that <Yeah>. night. <laughs> or if it just unexpectedly happens. You know, they have a medical staff right there, president. So they're just like, there's a couch there, too, I think. Yeah. But he kind of talked her into going into politics and stuff. It seems that he didn't affect her decision as much as he helped her pass the bar. Right. And I guess more people felt confidence in her for having passed the bar and being a lawyer 
so they voted for her and she won versus if she didn't pass her bar she lost it was kind of funny when Al said uh, he didn't want to talk to Sam in the bathroom again that he was starting to think that people would think he's a pervert because he is a pervert so it's funny <laughs> and what, what's funnier is that he doesn't nobody can see him so right <laughs> the fact that Sam is in the bathroom talking to himself might be a little funny but Al's concerned that people might think he's a pervert and nobody knows he's in the bathroom <laughs> there was a lot of funny little one-liners in this one uh one of my favorites I have to say the one I laughed out loud every time was when Al says I took my first third and fifth wife to Niagara Falls Mm-hmm. And Sam, with a straight face, looking at Al, says, that's odd. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. And watching it back again, like, for the third time or so, I really think that it might have just been Scott Bakula saying that. Because his <laughs> face. If it, if it wasn't scripted and he said that, that's what it felt like to me. It was so good. And I just thought it was funny. And then they went right back into the drama of everything. I was sitting on the couch like, oh, let's see what you did there. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. How odd. <laughs> That's odd. I can't wait until something in my real life comes up to where there's three odd things and I can say how odd. Yeah. And and nobody would think it was as funny because you're doing a callback to... Right. (laughs) I'll think it's hilarious. Yeah. But it's in my repertoire now. You'll just laugh so hard that you can't actually say that's odd. (laughs) You ever try to get to the end of a joke and you're laughing so hard? Yeah. That's what would happen. So Sam in this episode is really defending a woman's right to change her mind over who she marries, basically to get a divorce. Because I guess back then it was more of a man's choice only kind of thing. Women were still more like property than people. And uh, definitely to this guy, he was kind of a psychopath wanting to kill people. And uh, he considered Diane property and didn't want her to have the right to make the decision to divorce him. He's also from a different country that it might have taken a little bit of time to get that. And he's definitely the alpha male. He has an alpha male controlling personality. But that doesn't make it right. I'm, I'm glad that Sam... But he always, he's always morally right in all of his fights, I think. Makes you wonder um, if eventually in this series they'll get anything wrong. Like with 20 years of hindsight. And we'll see. But not so far. Pretty, pretty much so far he's done, done everything right. He's made the right moral decision on everything. Well, I think that going back in time, you have the the knowledge of today. Even if we were to go back 20 years and to have... There's still people that are, are prejudiced today. But I mean, if we, if we were to go back 20, 30, 50 years, we would be less even prejudiced or, or we have more of an equal rights mind as far as everybody is equal than most people did even 20 years ago when the show was was taped so I, I think that as we go on we we have more of a moral we're trying to be morally right i think as the times go on now i don't know how far that can go because <laughs> i don't i don't know what the future holds but so i think that's something that the show did get right someone from the future would be um more morally advanced than someone from the past yeah, I think we're we're always a growing society. We always try to learn more and, and grow as human beings. At least most of us do. Some of us. A lot of us. Yeah. We do. <laughs> at least we do. Our listeners do. Yeah. Uh, we're all on this journey together. Uh, you know how I always like to mention things I see in the HD version that people couldn't see originally? Yeah. Nipple tape. <laughs> That's so random. Alice Adair, who's playing Diane in this episode, she comes out in the negligee and she's trying to seduce Sam, Tom, and she's crawling on top of him and we can see down her nighty, but we can't see anything because she's taped into it and the double-sided tape is very obvious. So if you were actually on your honeymoon, 
you probably wouldn't tape yourself into your lingerie. I'm going to say no, but I'm sure what happened was is they were filming and they could see everything. So they're like, maybe we'll just put some tape. <laughs> put some gaffer's tape right on there. And I'm sure nobody ever saw it until it was in high definition. As is a lot of things in in shows from when small TVs. But I like- oh, the TVs weren't that small in the 90s. They were just not high def. Right, not clear. But uh, I like to notice those things that might have went unnoticed before. Did you know I was only like nine months old when this episode aired? So you were born. Yeah. When Sam tries to tell Diane about he's not her husband, Tom, she thinks he's like doing some kind of naughty fantasy thing. And so she reciprocates by saying, like, murder on the Orient Express and this and that. And then she asks, okay, it's not working. What's your fantasy? And he starts saying exactly where he is right now. I'm not Sam Beckett. I'm Tom McBride. And I'm your husband. And I just married the most beautiful girl in the world. And and then what happens? She sees Roger. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He uh, he uh, ruined it for Sam. Yeah. But... It was it was a sweet moment because if it was really Tom, it would be such a sweet thing to say because he was basically saying, like, my reality is better than a fantasy. But see, Sam saying it too is sweet because he's saying, like, you are my fantasy. But still, it was a cute moment. So how did Roger get to the next station that quick? They said he could have flown or driven. Driven, yeah. Trains don't go... I mean, they go fast, but they're not faster than a car. They don't... Not necessarily faster than a car. Right, and car might have took a more direct route or something. Yeah. But it's funny, um, in TVs or movies, uh, like, the bad guy looks really badass because all of a sudden he's at the next station, but they don't show him driving the whole way going, oh, I gotta make it, I gotta make it, I gotta get there before they get there, because that's not as scary. Yeah, it's, it's not as suave, like, smooth. Yeah, they just show the part where he's already there. This pickpocket that takes Sam's gun, worst pickpocket in the world. He bumps into him. He puts both of his arms in the guy's coat, and he's hugging Sam and, like, rubbing all around there. And it was like a 30-second pickpocket. Yeah, and then at the end, he's, like, holding the gun going, hee-hee-hee-hee-hee. Yeah, it was weird. It was, this the worst it was, pick- it was so you knew what was going on. <laughs> Again, probably small screens back then. They had to over-exaggerate, maybe. But, yeah, in real life, if that guy pickpocketed like that, he wouldn't be a good pickpocket. Yo, give me back my gun. I know what you just did. And he was already, they were already looking at him because he was being very French. <laughs> Stop it, you, for being French. Um, but Sam brushed that off because he thought that she was just being paranoid. But why, why wouldn't you be paranoid when your crazy ex-husband, who's an arms dealer, gangster dude, like is coming after you why would you feel safe after that yeah and you're on a train so they know where you're going it's not like you can take a different route yeah and why wouldn't he have bodyguards and backup men and stuff after you of course he would i don't know why sam was so nonchalant about it i guess because he didn't get word from ziggy and all that stuff yes that's why ziggy was right in this episode ziggy said that sam had to help her with her bar yeah help her pass the bar exam and that's what he did finally, and that's how he leaped, because that saved the project. If he had been Tom McBride, Tom would be more focused on not studying, so that's probably why she didn't pass her bar. But do you think that Sam, in his crazy brain power, me- like memorized the stuff that she was studying? Because he was like, no, that's not the right answer. I'm sure. I think that's another reason they mentioned that he could read books at two. Like, I could read at three, and I'm not a quantum physicist. I am reading at a fifth grade level right now. You would be. <laughs> I really did teach myself to read at three. It's pretty awesome. I had a TV. So did I. <laughs> I. I could be a quantum physicist right now. In an alternate timeline, you may be. So I think the most poignant 
scene in this episode, I mean, it wasn't really anything too heavy in this episode, but I think the little scene between Al and Sam, where Sam realizes that he might not ever see Al again if the project comes to an end. That was so sad and sweet. Yeah, I was all, this is our last communication. That was sad. And there was a little music cue in the background and the looks on their faces. I was like, oh, even though Sweetest bromance ever. Yeah. I mean, they really rely on each other and I think they're really good friends, Al and Sam. Yeah, and especially because Al and Sam are so close now because Sam has nobody else. I mean, not that they weren't close before. Obviously, they were partners and everything. But, I mean, Sam relies on Al wholeheartedly to get him information on how he has to do the leap. And Sam really can't do this without Al. I mean, I'm sure eventually he'd figure it out, but maybe too late. I mean, he didn't know he was going to get killed a bunch of different times. Right. He might not have. Uh, this is the first episode where Sam actually kills somebody. Oh, yeah. he Yeah, he definitely does. But with the full knowledge that if he doesn't, he's the one going to get killed. Tom McBride gets killed. Right. And I think he lets him go the first time. But I think that after he comes after them again, he deserves it. The second, you know, when he gets killed. Yeah, he was asking for it. Yeah. And, and if Sam had made a move right then... Either him or Diane would have lost her life. Which is what he was there to fix, kind of. So Yeah. He did. The Going back to Al trying to get Sam to change the future in a major way, Sam finally understands he has to ask Diane to call her father and try to get this thing changed so that the project can keep going. But it just felt wrong when he did it, and luckily her father was on a fishing trip in Canada, so she couldn't call her dad. Yeah, at that moment, I was like, okay, now what are they going to (laughs) do? It didn't seem like there was an easy way out. I really didn't know until she switched spots. Well, maybe right before, but I really didn't know that that's where they were going to go with it. I didn't see that coming at all, and that's awesome. Brilliant writing, especially for that long ago. Well, I I don't think that it matters how long ago it was. I think that it was really good, even compared to now. I mean, like, I just think that there are, like, great writers out there. Like, Donald P. Belisario is one. Look at Gene Roddenberry. Look at how much stuff he got right from from when he wrote about the future. And I just think that in time travel, it's, it's hard, like we mentioned before. But it also makes makes you that much better of a writer when you get things right. When you, when you make it a great show with something hard to write about, like time travel. The action at the end of this episode seemed kind of like uh, normal action-y kind of stuff for television, you know, running on the train, shooting, and the guy got ran over. That was interesting to me. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, that's a little harsh right. for the show, at least what we've seen so far. So kids don't become pickpockets because you'll get run over by a train. <laughs> Cause and effect. And it was kind of a surprise to me that Roger did end up dead. Yeah, but I don't really think the cops would have retained him. And it would have just been a constant battle. And she had to make it to the end. So, like, he had to save Diane in order to save the project, if you think about it that way. So, the only real way to get away was to kill him. A necessary evil. So, Sam helps her with the 13th and 14th Amendment and helps her pass her bar. And she switches spots with the committee chairman. We're thinking committee chairman? I would say. Because he had commented that he beat her for that position. So I guess, like you said earlier, she passed her bar. So she was... Now, to go back, her dad, I guess, took the first guy under his wing and showed him the way. But you think maybe because she passed her bar, her dad mentored her instead? Very possible. So uh, they both ran against each other after her dad died. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and she won the second time. Right. So she got the sympathy vote, plus she got the vote of the people that liked the fact that she passed the bar. Well, I think you... Don't, don't you have to pass the bar to be... And I guess not. 
Okay. I don't know anything about the bar, so. I don't drink. Well, I don't know about much about that bar either, but <laughs> I, I know it's hard. That's all I know. But like you were saying earlier, right before the switch happened, when they were leading up to it, that's when we both realized what was happening. Yeah. And a uh, really amazing moment, I think, in television. Yeah, because I love being surprised. I like when the, I have no idea where the episode's going. The old age makeup on Diane was pretty good. Alice Adair. And she was all slumped over. Yeah, good acting to seem older. And she yeah. seemed like she'd been through a lot more. She seemed older. Well, I'm, mission accomplished. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's why you hire a good actress, right? Uh, speaking of her, she was in Beverly Hills Cup 2. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah. Other than that, she uh, only did a few things. and uh, I, I've noticed that that kind of happens with a lot of the people that guest star on Quantum Leap. Overall thoughts on uh, this episode, Honeymoon Express? It was a good one, and I really like to know more about Sam. I like the episodes that we get a more of a glimpse into his personality, so I really like this one. I, too, like when uh, we learn more about Sam and his life, and it was nice to see more of what Al does on his side of the time divide. I still want to see Ziggy and all that. I want to see more of Al and that side, though. I think everybody does. I think we do see more, so... uh <laughs> see more. <laughs> Spoilers, but... <laughs> I want to see, like, the place, the quantum leap place that they're leaping from. I want to see Ziggy. I want to see more on that side. That's just me. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully we will. I'm looking forward to it. You know the future. (laughs) I know a little bit about it. As promised earlier, we have an interview with Holly Fields. You know her as Jill from Kamikaze Kid, and you might also know her from a lot of her film work and her extensive TV career. And uh, she's also done a lot of voice acting as of late. So if uh, you've played a Shrek video game or a Star Wars video game in the last few years, uh, you definitely know her voice. Jill from Kamikaze Kid, Holly Fields. Hi, how are you? Good. Great to have Great. you on here. <laughs> Great to have Thank you on here. You. Thank you. Oh, it's for fun be- to be on here. Quantum Leap is one of my favorite shows ever, so I'm very proud to represent it we have that in common oh good we reviewed the show you were in a couple episodes back and uh we really enjoyed it and thought you were really good in it oh thank you so much it was it was so much fun i almost ended up not doing it actually so that's that's how did that happen well i had auditioned that day for another for a tv series for um it was chris carter's series called brand new life with barbara eden and i went to network for the second time and I was told I had it by Chris Carter and I was his choice but NBC had seen my episode of MacGyver where I played a hooker and they're like well she can't play nice she plays hookers meanwhile I'm the opposite of the hooker (laughs) I'm I'm the nice girl but uh, so I was so devastated so I had this audition for this new show called Quantum Leap I had never heard of it the sides didn't make sense to me because one minute he's called Sam and then Cam I thought it was like a mistype and uh, I almost didn't go on the callback and I I did thankfully and uh, no one had heard you know it was the third episode ever so I went and I got it and I am so thankful for going on that what was it like uh, your experience filming Quantum Leap oh so much fun I was just a kid I was 13 and I uh, I had the best time ever I Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell are two of the nicest guys I've ever worked with and I've worked with a lot of great actors and nice people but Scott, by far, is one of the kindest men ever. So it was pretty exciting, pretty fun, and the, the crew was incredible. Don Belisario is really 
well known for picking out a fantastic crew that gets along and just a very happy set. Do you have any funny stories of things that happened during the filming? I do, actually. <laughs> yes, uh, it was my first kiss ever. So I, uh, yeah, ever. So I, I am getting to kiss Scott Bakula on screen. He's very, very tall. And so they had to put me on Apple boxes. So we're at the train station in Los, An- Los Angeles, and uh, I'm on this Apple box and dressed in 1950s clothing and doing the kiss. And uh, it just it's my first kiss, and my mom's there taking photos behind a tree and just very, very, you know, the whole crew's watching you. And it, I was so scared because I had never kissed anybody, and I was the kid, and he was so sweet about it and uh, more fatherly, which was strange, but just uh, it was very embarrassing. And then and then they, they, they knew how embarrassed I was about it, so... I thought they were joking when they said, we have to film the kiss again. I'm like, yeah, right. And they said, no, no, we have all this stuff behind it. And it was the first time they ever had him disappear during a kiss. So we actually really had to reshoot it. So we're reshooting it at Universal with the sky in the background so they could make him disappear easier. And uh, they were doing Dick Tracy next door. So Madonna was there, Warren Beatty, the whole crew and cast had just gotten out for lunch. So they're all... They're all there now watching the kiss. Wow. Because we're in the back lot between the sound stages filming this kiss up against the sky. And so embarrassing. And I just worked with Madonna on a Pepsi commercial. So she came over to say hi. And that was pretty cool. And um, so my first kiss was in front of like about 300 people. And I'm standing on Apple boxes. And it was with my mom taking photos. So... I'm sure that could be overwhelming for a 13-year-old girl, huh? Yeah, you know what? It was, but it wasn't. I, you know, I, I, yeah, you know, thinking back, I, I was embarrassed about it more so than scared, but I look back now, and it's pretty cool to have your first kiss on camera and with Scott Bakula. So. Is he a good kisser? Oh, yeah, yeah, and he was, he was just so sweet because it was a sweet, innocent kiss. You were 13 and he was 35 at the time. Was there any like weirdness about that? No, because he's such a kind man. He was just one of the most upstanding men ever, like just so sweet and respectable. Uh, He even let me use his dressing room when he wasn't using it, this big trailer. I just started acting. And so he wanted to give me confidence. And he set all of the tapes to my scenes so I could watch them in his trailer and he just gave me a key, said, lock up when you're done. I mean, who does that? It's, it's so rare to find an actor that is that kind. So he is just, I can't, I mean, I cannot say enough wonderful things about this man. He's wonderful. And so he's, and I've run into him since, and we still talk, and he's just a great guy. You hear that from a lot of people, so it must be true. Oh, he's incredible. I, I would actually go by after, anytime I was at Universal, and I'd hang out on the set and hang out with Don Belisario and, I got to do Jag again with them, and and I always got to hang out with Scott. And he's like, "Come, come here, come and watch, come and see this new set, and come to lunch." And just a great guy. It still is a great guy, even with all his fame now. I loved you on that episode of Jag. Your character was really good, and uh, oh, thank you. All the emotion you had to have in that episode it was it was pretty amazing. And uh, Dean Stockwell was also in that episode. Did were you yes. able to reconnect with him in that episode? Or yes, yes, but I look so different than I did on Quantum Leap because you know it's a kid on Quantum Leap and adult on. Jag and for a while he was like I can't remember because I was you know a little kid but I used to you know go by and talk with him you know, after I did the episode of Quantum Leap and he and I would sit and talk you know for like an hour during one of his breaks like after they filmed it even like two years after I filmed my episode I would still go by and we'd sit and hang out so yeah but it was it was so much fun reconnecting with him and and Don I love I love Don Belisario too 
if he likes somebody, he seems to keep recasting him in all his projects. So that's a good thing. Yes, he does. He, he, he tried to cast me again in Quantum Leap, actually, two episodes after I had just done, I think two, I think two or three, I had just done the Kamikaze Kid, and they couldn't find a girl for this next episode they were casting. And they had me come to Universal to just wait and while well, they had their callbacks. And they said, if we can't find anybody... We're, you're going to go right to wardrobe, and then we're filming the next day. So I came and sat and waited, but they, they found uh, Amy Foster, who was fantastic. So I was bummed, but I was happy for her. So, <laughs> What was it like to work with Jason Priestley? Oh, it's so much fun. He, had, he and I had just done MacGyver, not the same episode, but we both had just done MacGyver, and we had a lot in common for some reason. Uh, and we, just, we got along really, really well. We were both newcomers, and it was, I love him. He's a great guy. The whole cast, I mean, everyone they cast on that episode, I, I, I still see a lot of them and talk with them still. So it was a really positive experience for you? Extremely. Like, it's it's funny because that's, I think, one of the first things, I think maybe the third show I had ever done, and they could, everyone kept saying, just so you know, it's not all this fun. Like, not all sets are this fun. I'm like, yeah, they are. And they actually, I haven't really had a bad experience ever on a set. And, uh, but they, they had the Quantum Leap crew and cast, and the whole set, that, that was a different experience I mean, than any other set I've been on. It, it definitely was starting off at the top, <laughs> and you'll never find a, a casting crew that fantastic. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. When you were filming the scene when your character, Jill, was installing the nitrous oxide in the car, did, yeah. did they give you a direction that they were going to uh, speed up your voices to make it sound like helium? No, uh, they, they had explained to us that what was going to happen, but they didn't tell us how it was going to be done. I'm not sure if they knew at the time. Well, maybe they did, but they didn't tell us about it. They, I mean, they did say it, they didn't tell us exactly how it was going to happen. But they said that well, we're going to change it a bit. So just do it like a normal scene, and we'll take care of it. Mm, cool. Uh, yeah. We we have some questions for you from our listeners that they sent in. Cool. This question is from Peter. He asks, as someone who is playing off Scott Bakula, did you ever meet or interact with the real Cam? Oh no! Uh, you know what? Do I said I gosh. The character playing Cam, the real Cam, I didn't. I, I didn't, actually. Everything was, for my, all my scenes are with, were with Scott. This question is from Andrew. You've had a lot of roles over the years, with vocal work being more prevalent as of late. What type of work do you prefer and why? Well, I was on the OC, recurring on the OC, and I had a really bad car accident. So I actually kind of, kind of messed up my back. So I had to take a break for a while with on camera which is why I got more into, into voiceover. And it, thankfully, I got really lucky, and it took off. And voiceover, you actually you make more money than on camera. It's, it's crazy. You go in, you don't have to worry about what you look like or, or anything, and it, it's more based on your voice. So it's actually harder to get, but I, I got really lucky. And I started doing a lot of stuff for Cameron Diaz and, uh, and tons of other really great actors. So I, for some reason, I... I I've been acting since I was a kid, so I really loved the voiceover work because it was a change of pace and a challenge because for Cameron Diaz, like right now I'm working for her on a movie called The Other Woman with the director of The Notebook, Nick Casavetes, who is the most amazing director. So I'm very thankful for working with him, and I love Cameron Diaz. But uh, it's challenging because you have to you know, do well acting, of course, for them, and sound like them, and watch their lips, and copy what they're saying at the, all at the same time. So it's, I'm liking the challenge. I love challenges. So I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm going, I'm 
doing a lot of films right now. I went back to acting last year for on camera. But I, I really love the voiceovers. I love working on Star Wars more than anything. And I loved working on Shrek, too. That was so much fun. Yeah, you did a lot of work for Shrek. Tons of work. Yeah, a lot of it's on, on IMDb. I think I've done like 300-something. I don't even know how many projects for Shrek for all over the world. And it's so much I love the character Princess Fiona, and I, I just adore Cameron Diaz. So that's been such a fun job. I guess when you can voice match someone that well, uh, pretty much the character, you own it. Yeah, it's it's scary. I, well, I'm voice matching her now. I just started for the, well, I've been doing oh God for two months now for the other woman, and her voice has changed. So it's it's been a major challenge because she's in this. She's, she plays edgy, and I they keep telling me make your voice more you know not so sweet because I'm used to Princess Fiona, and she's got the sweet voice. So I learned Cameron Diaz's voice for that. So now she's her voice has changed. So I'm having to adjust my voice to be edgier so it's just such a fun job it, it it's hard to explain how it works but uh you just go in and it's it's very stressful actually because it is only your voice you're not getting to act with your your face or your you know your body you just stand there and put an earphone against one ear and have to sound just like them and there's so much more to it than on camera acting and uh, you did voice matching for Drew Barrymore as well, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, that was fun for Beverly Hills Chihuahua. And uh, yeah, she's awesome. I, I went to high school with her, so that was pretty cool getting to voice her. And Brittany Murphy, who was one of my best friends, and Leslie Mann, and Jennifer Love Hewitt, I've, I've, Paula Abdul. I've, I've voice matched a lot of people. It's so much fun trying to you know get into sound like somebody else. It comes from singing. I've sung my whole life, so it's, it's fun. I can... I can match pretty easily it's some people easier than others yeah because those people don't really sound a lot alike so to be no able to do... they don't no drew barrymore and cameron diaz do but yeah it's their other ones have been pretty hard but it's it's a fun challenge so i love doing it and you did many other roles i was looking at your imdb and going back and watching old episodes of things and uh, realizing i'd seen you in them like alf and charmed yeah. what was it like working with alf Oh, Al, oh, that was actually an interesting experience because uh, there were a lot of people trying to direct. Like, I had the director telling me to play it just the way I was playing it, but the guy playing Alf didn't want me to play it a certain way, and then the producers wanted it an opposite way. So I remember doing that show thinking, oh, my God, this is so stressful because, you, you know, everyone was telling me to play it opposite than the other person. So one person was telling me to play it kind of, uh, she was more like a dingbat kind of character, but then the guy playing Alf was like, don't play it like that. So I, I was having like five different people telling me how to play it. And they were all telling me how to play it differently. So that, that was a very stressful situation, but, but fun. A lot of people remember you from uh, that episode of Charmed where the guy was trapped in the painting. Yeah, I was actually supposed to be the youngest sister on Charmed. Uh, <laughs> that was a hard one. Uh, I had that part. The, the middle sister actually is what, who I was supposed to play. And then Holly Marie Combs decided she wanted to play it. And she was Shannon Doherty's best friend. So I was told all of a sudden I wasn't going to play it. So they tested me for the youngest. And I was told I had it. And then they hired a girl from that was under contract with Warner Brothers. And then she decided she did, after the pilot, she didn't want to do the show. So they called me and said, can you start on Monday? And this was a Friday. And they said, we have one other person that we're interested in. in and she's a, a very you know big-name actress. And I was like, okay, I understand. And they didn't tell me who. And it was Alyssa Milano, so 
she said yes to it, so I didn't get to do it. So I was really bummed because it would have been so much fun doing that show. I had I had a blast doing it, but I I do love Aly- Alyssa Milano, so I totally understand and I loved working with her. But uh, that was a hard thing getting told you had the show and then not getting it three times actually. So ouch. Ouch, yes. <laughs> but I've had that happen a lot. There's been so many shows. Like, I passed on Stargate. Oh, that's oh my goodness. Ever. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. What character would, what did you go up for it, in Stargate? It was any role I wanted. I had done MacGyver for them. It was Michael Greenberg. And he and I were speaking one day, and he said, hey, do you want to be on Stargate? And I have this thing where I don't want anyone to ever think I'm their friend to get a part. And because there's so many people like that in L.A. and I'm not that way. So I was like, no, 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 it's okay. You don't have to give me a part. And he's like, yeah, I'd like to. And I was young and I get it now. Like you want to work with your friends because you know they're going to show up and know their lines and you you know them. And it's better than hiring someone that you're not sure what's going to happen. So I I passed on it. And anyway, and I love Richard Dean Anderson. I, 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 he's such a great guy. I ended up going to the set and visiting when I was up there filming Sentinel, filmed, filmed up in Canada. And I, I love sci-fi, so that would have been so much fun to do. That would have been awesome. Yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes. And, and managers I've had have, and agents have had me pass on stuff that ended up doing really well. And But, you know, you live and learn, mm-hmm. and it's okay. So you're working on a Star Wars project right now? Yes. Yeah, that that's really fun to do. And I get to do my own voice for a change, so that's pretty cool. I get to develop the character, and I got to speak at Comic-Con twice, and I, I, I'm i the biggest fan of Star Wars. What's your character like in that game? Well, and for anyone who's played it, I could say it now. For, a year, for like two years when I was working on it, we weren't allowed to talk about it at all. But uh, now I can talk about her. Well, at first, I am uh, the nice, sweet girl. I'm the, I, gosh, I think I'm the Empress. In this one, it's been so long since I did the first one. And then I become a Jedi Knight, and then I become, I go to the dark side. So it's, there's a whole arc, and I love that. And she's a kick-ass kind of character, which I love to play. So she's a pretty cool girl. Like, I wish I were more like her in real life, but, but she's, it's a great character. Do you know what the name of the uh, game is and when it'll be out? I don't. It's actually, I, I don't know when it's going to be out, but it's still called Star Wars The Old Republic. Is that uh, harder doing for video games because you have to do so many different reactions, so many different takes, so many different things that might happen in the game? Uh, you know, yes and no. Like I, when you're doing on camera, it's really, it's a, I think it's a lot easier because you're acting with your body. When you're having to just stand there in a room by yourself because you're not interacting with any other actors, they add your voice in later with theirs. You're getting sometimes a cue line from the, the guy in the other room. So like I'm doing a love scene with my with a microphone pretty much. Like when you're doing a on-camera role, you're getting to actually act with somebody else in front of you. And when you're reacting, it's it's so much easier. But when you have nobody there to act with, it is actually pretty hard to to do that. So you have to really use your imagination. So, but but it's it the love scenes. I had a I'm making out with my finger. <laughs> <laughs> and then just I have like all these guys from Star Wars in there. All the producers watching me is it's really embarrassing. But but it's really fun. I'm thankful for it. We had a, another question from one of our listeners, Andrew Garber. He yeah. asks, will you marry him? Sure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that's so sweet. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't answer that yes or no. If, if, he, uh, if he's a good guy, you know, I, I consider it. Well, hey, I'm that's single, something. So oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So maybe, Andrew, you never know. Possibly, yes. 
Uh, I understand you're involved in some charity work. Big time, yes. I am a big, big, big animal lover. I've rescued dogs my whole life and cats and animals. And uh, I, it's so funny. I went to a party and I'm talking to this guy in the room and I hear the band Toto mentioned. I didn't really know this band that well. And I was like, yeah, I know. I, I thought I knew the lead singer. I thought it was my friend Nikki Freeze, who's actually the lead singer of Shalimar. And uh, I'm telling this guy, oh, yeah, I know the lead singer. And he's like, what's his name? I'm like, well, Mickey Freeze. He goes, no, I don't think that's the lead singer. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. I, I promise you. So I go out and I'm talking to this other woman and, and sitting there. And this guy walks over and she's like, this is my husband, Bobby Kimball. And he's in the band Toto. The guy I had been speaking to um, <laughs> is the lead singer. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. <laughs> he is the nicest guy you will ever meet besides Scott Bakula. Um, he was laughing. I'm like, why didn't you tell me you were the lead singer? I feel so stupid. And we've become the best of friends ever since. It's been, I think, five years now. And I've done backup for Toto and backup you know, for Bobby when he sings. And we do animal charity events for the vet and the veterans, and not veterinarians, the veterans. And uh, we've done a lot of great functions where they, you know, he sings and Bill Champlin from the band Chicago sings and a lot of like huge singers come and we've raised a lot of money and we also do photos of animals that need homes with a celebrity and we shoot the photo, we put it up on the internet and we find homes for these, these dogs. So it's been pretty awesome. Is there any way people can find out more information about that? Yeah, they can go to Saving Canine Lives on Facebook and there's our photos up there and dogs that need homes and it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool foundation and it's, we make no money from it whatsoever. It's just doing it for the dogs and we're going to expand it to everything else like cats and we want to do an elephant foundation as well. So that's, we're working on that right now. My daughter's favorite animal. She's about 14 months old and she loves elephants. Really? Oh, that's so cute. What's her name? Serenity. Oh, I love that name. Is that from the TV show? Firefly. Yes, I love Firefly. Okay, See, I knew that. I, you know, now I am a, definitely a sci-fi person. <laughs> yeah, most people say that's beautiful, or is that from Firefly? I say yeah, yes. it's in, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Holly. Thank uh, you. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your work on Quantum Leap. Thank you, and have a wonderful holiday and a great new year to everybody that's listening. I'm so jealous that you got to interview her. She seems awesome. Yeah, she was a pleasure to talk to. Such a nice person. We emailed before the conversation, and she was nice in email, and she was so nice on the phone. Uh, just a great person overall, and uh, great stories about, you know, first kiss and first on-screen kiss all at the same time with Scott Bakula, and she said Scott Bakula was a great kisser, so now we know. <laughs> well, how nerve-wracking would that be? I can't even imagine, but it was a great scene, so... Yeah, um, but it, it also worked out because it was supposed to be her character's first kiss too. So I guess that was it. All worked out the way it was supposed to. Can you imagine Madonna, Warren Beatty, and about three hundred other people watching you kiss for the first time? Yeah, just to add a little bit more pressure to you. <laughs> and then speaking about pressure, what about the guy she kissed second? Uh, my first kiss was with Scott Bakula. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you you got to measure up to that. Right. No pressure. But uh, thank you very much to Holly Fields for that interview. Oh, and uh, she had mentioned Amy Foster in that interview, and uh, we weren't sure at the time what episode she was in, and she was in episode season three, episode 11, Runaway. So when we get to that, maybe we'll remember what she was talking about. 
but uh, she was on standby for that. We have some little fun little bits of information about this episode we found out. Yeah, like the image chamber door is not seen in this episode. Usually there's at least one spot where where you see Al closing the door or opening the door. So that would go to my earlier theory of uh, they use that sound effect to get us used to the fact that the door is there. So we don't have to see it. We just hear it so we know what happened. So uh, a good cost saving measure. Yeah, as far as the special effects go. Also, this is probably one of the most oh boys we've heard in the episodes so far. Um, there was a lot of oh boys in this episode. Yeah, yeah, he was in a lot of uh, awkward situations, I guess. So there were four oh boy moments in this episode. What were they? Uh, the usual when he leaps into the situation and has a woman making out with him, I guess. Um, when Sam tries to talk to Al and Diane intervenes with a goodbye kiss. When Sam sees Diane in a black nightie. And when Sam first notices Tom's gun. Oh, boy. (laughs) I've noticed lately that Mickey Mouse says, oh, boy, a lot. Maybe because he's a fan of Quantum Leap like we are. So anytime he says, oh, boy, I'm like, is he about to leap or something? We have some listener feedback. Thank you to everyone who's leaving feedback. And uh, we have an email from Hutch1959. He says, love your podcast. I watched Quantum Leap during its original run and then again in reruns. Had all the episodes on VCR tapes. That's pretty cool. When I was a kid, I did record a lot of these on VHS, but unfortunately, uh, they all burned up in a fire, so I no longer had those. Which brings up a interesting thing. If anybody does have original recordings of Quantum Leap from the early 90s on VHS, and you have the episode promos and have a way to get us the audio, I'd greatly appreciate audio of the episode promos. There's only about five that I found out there, and I like to include them in the end of the episode. So if you anybody out there has those and can get them to me, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Hutch, for your email. And now we have some iTunes reviews. I had asked a few shows ago for us to get some uh, feedback for iTunes and uh, five-star ratings. One person gave us a one-star rating, and he doesn't like the show. This is by Thistlethorn. This is a one-star rating. I signed up for this hoping to hear some good insights from someone who was watching and enjoying the show for the first time. I was very disappointed. I only listened to Genesis, and I got the feeling that neither of the podcasters actually liked the show. They failed to take into account the effects of the show were from 25 years ago and were nitpicking on silly things, such as hairstyles and clothing. I highly recommend Quantum Leap, but this podcast could disappear and I wouldn't miss it. So that's not a good review, really. That's pretty harsh. Ouch. I'd like to say that we love this show. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure if you're still listening, if you held out for the nine episodes, you... I I would hope you know that we love the show. Yeah, we wouldn't do it if we didn't love it. I mean, I loved it before we started. Heather had no idea about it, but she's beginning to love it, I think, right? Yeah. Um, But the reason why we nitpick on hairstyles and stuff like that is because, I mean, if if this show were to air today, I don't think that it would, it would, the hairstyles and stuff would be relevant, but it's not it's all it's all in fun it's not actually dissing the right and if we just talked about all the good parts and uh not all the different things we noticed it wouldn't be very interesting and it wouldn't be honest right so i mean i love quantum leap absolutely love 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 quantum leap that's the reason i do it i mean heather and i spend the majority of the week working on this and uh, it's a labor of love and we really enjoy doing it for everybody and uh i'm sorry that he didn't like us but i guess not everybody's gonna like us So what I did is I posted in our Facebook group that we got a bad review on iTunes. And if anybody had a different opinion of us to post it in iTunes. So we got some responses there. Our second iTunes review um, is a five-star rating from Love Across Oceans. This podcast could disappear and it would be greatly missed. It more than serves its purpose. I find the nitpicking, as stated above, to be a 
breath of fresh air. An obvious love for the show fuels this podcast. So to take it beyond there as an insult to them, not liking the show sounds like a misunderstanding to me. Everyone is titled to their opinion. Please tune in, guys. It's worth every second of your time and then some. So much love coming your way. Keep up the stellar podcast. So that would be a good review. Yes. Thank you. Love across oceans. It's funny that we did get a bad review like that because on our last podcast, the Terra Nova podcast, we actually had listener feedback that said, come on, guys, you guys are working for Fox, right? Fox is paying you. And I was like, no, I really love the show. But they thought we were too positive. So I guess you can't make everybody happy, right? Yeah. Maybe he was just having a bad day. Maybe. Hopefully he'll come back. I I do have a friend, though, that hates everything. Like if you talk to him, he... He likes everything, but then he hates everything, too. Right. So maybe he's just one of those people who left the comment. Maybe. But uh, so far, we're one bad, one good, right? What's the next one? Um, this is another five-star rating from Brian from Houston. Love this one. Such a fan of Quantum Leap and was so excited to stumble on this podcast about it. Me and my wife are having a blast going back and watching old episodes with this podcast as a supplement. Great hosts, and they add a lot to our enjoyment of the show. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much. And this is by Her Freak. It's a five-star review. It says, Excellent. Stumbled onto this podcast while doing some Quantum Leap movie research and immediately connected with it. I absolutely love this show. And I love the fact that there are people like me out there. Albie and Heather do an excellent job of describing the show. I also love the fact that Heather has yet to see the whole series. As I find it enjoyable to hear someone as excited as I was, am, when I first watched all the episodes. Not that my love for the show has ever waned, but this podcast has definitely reminded me of just how great it really was. Definitely worth the listen, everyone. So that's a good one. Thank you, thank you. I'm excited that I'm going through this for the first time, and it's awesome that people get to enjoy the ride with me. Okay, this is our fifth one um, by Quantum Leap Obsessed. Hey, I like that. (laughs) Uh, It's a five-star rating. It says, great. This is such a fantastic podcast. I'll definitely be tuning in again. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. I like their name, Quantum Leap Obsessed. Okay, number six is by Boghoss2. It's another five-star rating. It says, perfect, no, but neither was Sam or Al. This is still a relatively young podcast, and its hosts are still working to find their voices. They're doing a great job, however, helping us all relive the amazing production that was Quantum Leap. As the half of the duo that has seen these before, Albie is doing a good job of playing coy for his partner. Heather is who we are living vicariously through, though as she is discovering each episode for the first time. Could they pick the episodes apart and find fault within each one? Sure, but that's not where the joy is. They're doing what we all love to do, which is to watch and celebrate as Sam is triumphant at helping put right what once went wrong. That's not easy to say out loud. Not at all. <laughs> Maybe we'll get that eventually. Thank you, Boghaas, too. That's awesome. We appreciate that. And uh, it's very honest, and uh, we are still finding our way, and I think uh, we're getting there. Number seven is from Captain Swan 4 It's another five-star review. It says, awesome podcast. Love it. Very well done. Thank you very much. That's a good one. So uh, I'd say uh, so far so good. Yeah, well. And uh, in our other feedback, when I asked our listeners, what is your theory about the time travel in Quantum Leap and more specifically in Honeymoon Express? Would the panel even know if Sam had changed history on a global scale or would that be their history all along? How is Al not affected by the change in the timeline? Is any of this possible? So that was my question I posed to our listeners. Hayden McQueenie answered, Ziggy would know all of the changes as she keeps a record of both timelines in her memory banks. This is also why Al, and as we find out later, Sam, remember both timelines as well, because their brainwaves are connected through Ziggy. So if Al was to make a video recording of himself and the committee members making the agreement and store it in Ziggy, had Sam been able to change history on a global scale, thereby changing the timeline and eliminating the event from happening or being recorded, 
Al would still be able to show the committee members the video of the agreement, thus proving that the timeline did in fact shift. Wow. That's a good point. Very good point. I'm not really sure why he referred to Ziggy as a girl, but I guess I'll find out later. Very good point, Hayden. I don't. I still don't know why Al was trying to affect something on a global scale. I mean, he could have just used the whole running against time uh, way of communicating through time by just placing a personal ad back in the past and have it say something ridiculous that nobody would care or think of back then, but they would know now. That would make such sense if he said, hey, just call the newspaper, place an ad for me. And to have it say... And then, uh, hi, this is Al, and I'm proving to you that Sam traveled back in time. Right. <laughs> or any any ridiculous sentence they wanted, and it would have been fine. But again, wouldn't make a good episode. Okay, and uh, next, Juan said, but how would the panel know for sure that anything was changed? You're traveling through time. I'm guessing it's not much of a stretch for the panel to say that Sam and Al faked those pre-recorded videos somehow, especially since the whole panel and the whole world would have absolutely no memory of whatever was supposed to have changed. Even if you did pre-record something, what's to say that those same committee members are on the panel now that the timeline has changed? Maybe changing something on a global scale prevents those committee members from being on that panel. I think trying to predict how one change will affect the world is impossible. Yeah, see, this is why time travel is hard to debate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's really a difficult subject, and I wonder if... It's like the black hole of, <laughs> of possibilities. There's so many different ways. I mean, there's different schools of thought on time travel. There's so many what-ifs that you could just discuss forever. Right. Again, I'm saying that if somebody goes back in time and changes time, we would have no knowledge of it because we're in that timeline now. We would know nothing different. Right. It's always been that way. And it'll be interesting to see that if in Quantum Leap it stays that way or the rules of the time travel do in fact change in Quantum Leap. Okay, Jimbo Williams, he answered the question very succinctly and uh, fact-based, but it was major spoiler alert. So since Heather and some of our listeners haven't seen the whole series yet, we can't really read that one. I've learned I have to stay out of the group comments. <laughs> right, I get the feedback and put it in the notes for us. So This one is from Rich Ladwig. Great question. It would seem that the complex holding Project Quantum Leap sits within a time-based warp shell, which would also explain the time-shifting lightning appearance on exterior shots. Now, within this bubble, the data loaded in Ziggy's mainframe wouldn't be compromised by Sam's travels after changes to the timeline. But it's only of any use as a comparison after the fact, as shown by Ziggy's often incorrect predictions of what to change. This could also explain the Swiss cheese effect, as Sam's neutrons try to connect his physical brain within the chamber to his consciousness external of it. And although Ziggy was programmed with a pretty detailed history, once Sam is located, Ziggy locates more detailed facts from public and government records, as shown to cause delays in determining what to change, thus showing that events don't change until they reach that exact moment within Sam's life, preventing the time traveler's paradox. In any case, though, life external to the complex wouldn't be aware of any change since they ran along the new timeline from the past, and anything, once taken out of the bubble, would be subject to the new timeline. So, no proof could be shown to the panel. That's the main reason funding for the project is always in jeopardy, as everything would have to be taken on faith, unless at some point the panel was to convene within the complex. Well, that was a lot of fun to think about. I love the show and was one of those many who complained until they brought it back. So I really enjoyed this walk down memory lane. Thanks for the questions and tolerating my reply. Hopefully someone read this far before deleting it or skipping to the next one. 
Thank you, Rich. Time travel is a tricky thing, and we may never know how it works, if it works, or if the timeline is changing all around us all the time. We just, there's no way to know. Hayden McQueenie says, To answer your question, Juan, if each member of the panel had to record something on video that only that person would know, similar to the Ernst Berger quiz, perhaps, maybe ask where they were the first time they made love, for example, then that would be enough for the person to know the timeline had shifted. Of course you're right that this wouldn't help if the butterfly effect changed these events that the person mentions in the video, or if there are different committee members in the altered timeline. But I'm sure there are other ways around this as well. Thank you, Hayden. We've gotten a lot of great feedback about how quantum leap time travel works. I'm not sure if anyone affected by a change in the timeline would have any clue that changes have, in fact, been made. Also, when leaving feedback, folks, remember, I'm watching Quantum Leap for the first time. So please, no spoilers beyond the episode we have just watched. Thanks again for all the feedback. There are many ways to leave feedback for us. You can send email and audio files to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And check out the ongoing discussion at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast we are on twitter at quantum leap pod and we love getting voice feedback to leave a voice message please call 707-847-6682 are you excited for the next episode kevin from the preview looks like we're going to need our spf 250 it's going to be a hot one Sam leaps into the 1970s as a stuntman, Chad Stone, in Disco Inferno. This is worse than anything imaginable. What are you talking about, Sam? You're on the set of a low-budget disaster movie, Disco Inferno. Uh, you're in uh, Burbank, California, April 1st, 1976. In the next two days, Chris is going to die. He's your little brother. He dies? How? I don't know. You just got to play big brother uh, for a couple of days. I could have done it. Have my card right now. Is that what you want? Your stuntman's card? What do you think I've been working for all this time? What was your music? Music? You've been playing guitar. Look, you want to make Dad proud? Then do what you do best. It'll take a lot more courage than jumping off buildings. Sam is a stuntman? That sounds dangerous. I'm looking forward to watching that one. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And once again, we would like to thank Holly Fields for talking with us. That was a great interview. It sure was. It was an amazing conversation. Well, this is your friend in time, Albert Burge. Check me out on trekaholic.com, albie.ws, and tvtalk.com. And I'm Kevin Batchelder. And you can find me online at our family of podcasts, at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com and also on a couple of shows on the TVTalk.com network covering Arrow and Almost Human. Happy leaping, folks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to QuantumLeapPodcast.com to listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when a new episode is available. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, researched by Juan. 
the Quantum Leap universe, and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Barren Space production. All the sweet stuff's really getting to us, ma'am. Cause my tastes are changing, I'm reaching higher, ready to greet the taste that's less sweet now. I'm making my move to Canada Drive, so long to sweet things, he's ready to try. Ginger ale, crisp and light, not so sweet but so right, I'm changing my taste, he's raising his sights. I'm making my move, sweet soft drinks goodbye. I'm making my move and you 